and silence and prepare, let God prepare our hearts to hear the word today and just let our spirits and our minds, our attentions fully catch up to our bodies here in this space. Our Father in heaven, we trust that you are here, that you are at work through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus through his spirit that is now fully available in our hearts and in our bodies. I pray that you guide our conversations, our time today. We trust you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we're reading from the Gospel of Mark. I'm just going to jump right in and read from verses 9 through 15 comes right after 1 through 8, which we did last week. So let's read this out together. If you have a hard copy, read it with me. If not, it'll be on the screen, verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. So last week was kind of, amen. That should be just the message. We could be done now with the, the throwing down of that. So last week was almost like a, uh, the hook of an introduction. It's like scriptural allusions out the wazoo. It's like major preparation. God is about to move. The long-awaited time of the kingdom is coming. And like we are, can feel the momentum mounting. They're out in the wilderness. Lots of uh, imagery that God is about to do something huge. And now here is almost like the main idea. It's like if you are used to writing your little like five paragraph essays that your English teacher taught you, you get your introduction hook, and then you have your like thesis sentence. And then the rest of the, the essay is supposed to reflect that main idea. Well, that's how they're supposed to do it, but I've taught college men, and some people don't teach students how to write papers anymore. But this is like the now the, the, fi- the summary statement of what, G- what Gospel of Mark is about to do where he sums up Jesus' identity, who he is, he sums up his vocation, what he came to do, and he sums up his message, how you would summarize his, the main content of his preaching, and then how we're supposed to respond or what we're supposed to do about it. Those things are summed up here, and we could then read the rest of the gospel through this lens. And what's convenient about the Gospel of Mark is he gets right to it. The other Gospels will spend lots of periods doing all three of those things. And Gospel of Mark, he just sprints the whole way. He's like, here's what's happening. Jesus is this person. He's going to go out to the wilderness and fight Satan. Then he's going to preach the kingdom. You're going to repent and believe. Bada bing, bada boom. Moving on to the next story. And so this kind of section sums up that deal. Who is Jesus? What he came to do? How he summed up his own message? And how we're supposed to respond? So let's jump in to see what this has to say about Jesus' identity. Remember, the gospel is about Jesus. It's not about us. It centers on him. It says, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. 
And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw heavens torn apart, and the Spirit is descending like a dove on him, and a voice came to him from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. Jesus is God's Son. But there's so much packed in that title, the Son of God. We already saw that in verse 1, that Jesus is seen as the Son of God. And now we, on this side of the cross, knowing that Jesus is God in the flesh, associate being Son of God only with Jesus' divinity. But that title, being God's Son, had a richer symbolism in the Old Testament that's worth covering to kind of build out all the else that was in there. First time it's mentioned, or when a big emphasis in the Old Testament is that Israel, the nation of Israel, the people of God, are seen as God's unique son. They are God's chosen people for a job to get to kind of through them bless all nations. And there's a language of seeing them as the son of God, collective people of Israel. Then the Israel's king, as a representative of those people, is described as the son of God where he has an agency, a role with God's people to lead his people, and as such is seen as God's son. And then that title, Son of God, is used to say not only the king of Israel, but the eventual like mega king of Israel, the Messiah, God's appointed agent, who would help heal Israel and do for Israel what Israel could not do for themselves, and finally through this Messiah rescue the world. That figure was starting to see as God's son. And so actually God's son is not just seen as a, a deity person in the Old Testament, but a, the people of God. It almost has a human element to it coming from the people of God. But as that story is unfolding and the people of Israel are waiting for God to finally move through his chosen agent, they were starting to see that the problem was so profound. The problem in them and in the world was so deep that we cannot just have a human agent. We need God's personal presence himself to intervene. We need God's personal presence in person to pay us a visit and through that person actually rescue and heal all the people. So you have both these elements that he is of the people, represents the people, and also needs to come from God and represent God. The people of Israel had no idea how that tension was going to emerge, but we start to see it in this passage where it's crucial that Jesus is from Nazareth. I should have put that in bold too, that he is an actual human being. When it says Jesus from Nazareth, it wants to emphasize that this isn't Jesus floating in the sky, invisible Jesus that's like superhero, not really human. It's like Jesus born out of that village Nazareth, which is like what's coming out of Nazareth, other people say. He comes from this village where he grew up. People knew his name there. People remember like 20-year-old Jesus and 15-year-old Jesus and 3-year-old Jesus. Like, yeah, we remember him from Nazareth. It's that person that then becomes the one that God says, you are my unique and only son who bears my full character, who indeed is me, is God in the flesh, and my spirit is fully in you. And we see beginnings of that Trinitarian mystery where God the Father speaks a a word to his son, and he gives him his spirit. That mystery that we can hardly communicate with words. I almost didn't want to go into ministry because I remember thinking, man, I just can never explain the Trinity. And the pastor was like, yeah, me neither. <laughs> I'm like, well, good. I'm glad we're on the same page then. And so we see here this tension that Jesus is both fully human, representing human beings, representing the people of Israel. He's God's son as the people of Israel are God's son. 
but fully divine where he's God's unique beloved son and that tension is required for what Jesus is about to do next because that final quote there you are my son the beloved with you I'm well pleased is a quote from Isaiah 42 when God says to the people of Israel you are my servant I am well pleased in you I delight in you and if you keep reading in that Isaiah passage you see that being God's beloved son his beloved servant leads to a vocation that is one of suffering and death, where he will suffer because of the sins and the weaknesses of the people in order to save those people, and he will be God's divine agent. And so that quote kind of brings into this next section of Jesus' vocation. He's not just God's unique and only son that is a representative of the people in order to kind of just hang out, but he has an important job to do of being sent out to suffer because of what the people have done and, and to overtake sin. Let's go on to the next part in the vocation. Actually, real quick, why don't you go right back? I got something to say real quick about the little side here that Jesus was baptized. This is not baptized for salvation. Jesus is not a sinner in need of salvation. This is baptism as a representative of human beings to join in this corporate renewal through which Jesus was about to, or through which God was about to rescue all the people of Israel. But I just want to notice that this baptism is a predecessor to our baptism as Christian people. And there's, for whatever reason, there's been 2,000 years of baggage around baptism, and lots of Christians have, and, and Christian groups and denominations have done baptism differently. Many choose to not do it at all. I knew lots of Christians that have been Christians for a long time that have chosen not to be baptized. But I just want to stop the pause to say, Jesus himself was baptized. He then commands people in Matthew 28 to be baptized. And baptism is very rarely the main subject in the New Testament because when it is mentioned, it is merely presumed that if you are a Christian, you've been baptized. And so it's worth, since it's in here, to name, if you are a person who follows Jesus, or we want to, and you haven't been thoroughly dumped as a symbolic representation of dying and rising with Jesus, this is just an occasion for the Spirit to work in your heart to convict you to do that. I think you should do that. I think Jesus did it, and he asked us to do it. And whatever Jesus does, we should frankly do it. Like Jesus is a carpenter, right? I'm like, I don't know how to work with wood, but if he did it, maybe I should work, figure out how to work with wood because he did it. You know, why wouldn't I go do that? So, yeah, I just want to make that an aside. I mentioned to say that to reflect on if Jesus did it, why wouldn't we? All right, let's move on to Jesus' vocation, what he came to do. As soon as my brother comes up out of the water and the spirit descends on him, before he's even dried off, he's being sent out to the wilderness. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. And now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Some versions say the kingdom of God is here, or the kingdom of God is at hand. And so his vocation... What Jesus came to do was to confront, face, and defeat Satan. Defines that Satan is the true and ultimate enemy of God. Satan, this mysterious subpersonal force, he's like beneath a person, but yet the concentration of evil energies whose aim is death, who wants to destroy creation. Satan means the accuser. He's like the, the director of public prosecutions, the one who shames and accuses and, and points out all the wrongs 
and drives us against our Creator towards rebellion. Satan's aim then is death. That's his goal. That's what he is for. He's an agent that steals, kills, and destroys. He wants to harm and tear down all creation. He wants to undo what God set out to do in creation, to have a flourishing material world that had faithful human agents that would bring God's goodness to the rest of the world. So Satan is the opponent to that. He's not equal to God. He's not like good and evil against each other. He is a concentration of energy, of evil, that is antagonistic to what God's after. And the means by which he accomplishes his goal of death is sin. Sin calling us to rebel against our calling as God's people, as image bearers meant to reflect God's glory to the creation and gather up creation's praises back to God. And so sin, Satan, and death have worked together since the fall to undo what God is after. And sin, Satan, and death are ruling. How many times do we say God's in control? We like to say that sentence. I don't think it's the best sentence to communicate what's actually happening. I'd rather say God is in charge. Because I can be in charge of my kids, right? But grant them permission and freedom that allows for them to get injured or hurt or use my stuff. My kids are regularly coming up and finding my things and be like, can I use this? Can I have this? I'm like, well, you can use it. Well, can I possess it in my room now? I'm like, well, you can, okay, you can take it to your room now. And Jada's always like, can I have it in my room forever? I want it here forever. And Graham's always like, whew, man, Jada, you're always making lifelong commitments here. <laughs> he actually said that the other day. But I'm in charge of my house. And in that charge, there is freedom and room to go against what I actually really wish would happen. And that's how creation works, where God is in charge, but while being in charge, he's granted room for spheres of his good creation to not do what he wants it to do. And that sphere has overtaken human beings as a whole to where the antagonist against God, Satan, gets his way. And that is spread throughout our bodies and against creation. And Jesus identifies the primary enemy is Satan. And he's going to take him out. And see, he goes out to the wilderness where, you know, first Satan confronts God's first people, Adam and Eve, in a garden. Where you would think, man, the battle's pretty easy in the garden. It should be easy for human beings. They have everything they need in the garden. And they still lost. He goes to the wilderness where it's quite a battle. There's not as much resources out there in the wilderness. But the wilderness, remember, is where the people of God went before the promised land. And they had just gotten the law. They had just gotten a fresh covenantal relationship with God. They had just gotten rescue from slavery. And they went out there. And what did they do? They failed for 40 years. And Jesus and God said, you're going to stay out here for 40 years. And the next, this whole generation is going to die before we're going to enter the promised land because you all lost to Satan. You rebelled against me. And so he makes them stay out there. So Jesus goes out and confronts Satan and succeeds where the first humans failed and where the people of Israel failed. He succeeds where all other human representatives have failed to do their job and defeats him. And as he defeats the one who's against all good creation, the very beginning of that restoration project where creation is meant to dwell in harmony starts to happen. He's with the wild beasts out there. And they aren't threatening him because the beginning of the restoration project is underway. 
He had indeed defeated Satan. And the rest of the Gospel of Mark is an unfolding of that victory. So Jesus, as God's divine agent, confronts and defeats Satan in the way that only God could through suffering and death. And this defeat now, where Satan must have been tempting him to go against being the king the way that God wanted to be the king through the cross, we see from uh, Matthew and Luke that that temptation was to do God's kingdom in the way that Satan wanted and not in the way that God wanted. Jesus wins that battle and carries that victory through to the cross. And so now because of that, he's able to announce this is the nature of Jesus' message. It is not persuasive, He doesn't argue. I love it. It's freeing. He just declares what reality is. This is how we can then preach. It's not, I need to argue with you. Here's my ten points of reason and how I can persuade you to the truth. It's just declarative. I'm going to suffer with Jesus, and I'm just going to announce what is, in fact, the case. God's kingdom is now here. And that is the gospel summary, which is so much bigger than, the gospel's now been mentioned, good news or gospel, same word, has been mentioned now like three times in, in 15 verses. How many times has it said that the gospel is the way for us to have obtained personal salvation and find a way to get to heaven? Zero times. It hasn't said that yet. That is true, but it's a partial truth. And from what I've experienced in life, sometimes partial truths cause more damage than a full-blown lie. And when we submit ourselves to just the partial truth, that the only thing God's after is forgiving our sins and getting to heaven, that gives us no vision for engaging in this world where sin and Satan and death are still present, but where their power has been broken. And when we don't have a richer, more robust story that announces that, we will find us a story that is much more tribalistic and much more rooted in finding other enemies other than Satan, where evil is not this complex thing that actually is inside our own hearts that we need healing from, but evil is those people out there that are making the world a worse place. We will have no vision for it unless we live in a much broader announcement that in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, through his personal presence, the long-awaited reign of God is now here, where Jesus' body becomes the first little area of physical creation where now what God wants to happen happens. Where heaven has been opened, that doesn't mean there's some hole in the sky out there. Heaven is like God's dimension of reality, where what God wants to happen, happens all the time. That dimension of reality comes to full head in the actual body of Jesus, where in that body, that was the only place of creation where what God wants to happen, happens all the time. It's where God reigns. And now through Jesus, carrying all of God's work in him, and confronting our full-blown enemy that is accusing and shaming and tearing down and killing and tempting and pulling us away and isolating us, now that he's been defeated, Jesus has made a way for that kingdom to expand heart to heart and body to body. Where what was true in Jesus' body, where God reigned in that space of creation, has now been made possible to happen in your body. Where you become a new space where Paul says, you're new creation. You are an example, a reflection of what is, what is to come with new creation. The beginning point of that restoration project of the reign of God starts, can start now in your body. It doesn't mean you get to be perfect now. It means, though, that the power of sin, Satan, and death over you has been broken. His presence of sin, Satan, and death, which we all know, I don't need to tell you this, is still present 
It's around. We can see it. It is tempting. But the gospel, the good news, is that all those curses, all that shame, all it, the lies have been broken. They are no longer true. They no longer have power over you. They may tempt you. They may speak lies to you, but they are not the truth anymore. That power has been broken by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Amen. Amen. And so the long-awaited reign of God is now available. That's the good news. Through Jesus, it's now available, and we can have it. So how do we respond? He tells us all other options. You face this world. What other story do you tell? You turn away from that. The true story is the Jesus one, that we announce that Jesus is now the ruler of the world. Satan, who he, Jesus himself said Satan is the ruler of the world. He said that three times. Through Jesus, he's now the ruler of the world. And he says we can turn away from all other allegiances, all other stories, all other false hopes, all of our insecurities. We can turn away from the ways that Satan has accused us and brought accusation in our hearts to tell us that we are outside of the family, that we are not loved, that we are too much, or that we are not enough. Those lies are now gone. We can repent and turn away from trusting them any longer. We can repent and instead turn to Jesus. We repent and turn away from sin, from rebellion that has ensnared our hearts. We repent and turn away from the ways that we are drugged into that kind of tribalism and hatred and fear-based living. We're able to turn away from that. And then we turn to, it says, believe in the good news. Now, belief is not just mental assent. It's not like, yeah, that sounds good. I trust that. This is a more full-blown confidence where you then start to trust what Jesus has to say about reality and about you. And so remember what I said at the beginning, that Jesus, as God's son, is not just a representative of God, but a representative of you. And you then have capacity to put your trust that what he says about you is the true answer about you. And so now, what God has said to him, you are my beloved child. In you I am well pleased. He now can say about you. And you can repent of false beliefs that either believe you're higher than that where you don't need God, or you're lower than that and worth nothing. And you can instead choose to place your confidence in Put your trust in that he looks at you the way he looks at Jesus. And he looks you in the eye and he says, you are my beloved child. I delight in you. In you I am well pleased. He's able to say that now, not because of something you accomplished, not because of your career or you got good grades or that you're pretty or handsome or have a nice body or that you've done something special that other humans are proud of. It's just merely existing and because of the work of Jesus. He can look at you and say, you're my beloved child. No matter what you have done before, that no longer has a bearing on your identity anymore. No matter what you could do later on or what could happen to you, that no longer has a bearing on your identity. You are my beloved child. I have fully dealt with that. In you, I am well pleased and delight. We are able to then trust in that message. We place our confidence in it. You won't always understand it. It won't always be clear as day, but you can make a choice to trust in it, much like the way I can trust in this chair. Look. I do not, I'm not an engineer. I don't know how chairs work. I couldn't do all the math. Someone built this stool probably on some AutoCAD or something or other and learned how all the angles needed to be to hold a human being up. I don't know how it works. I have just enough trust that I can sit in it. That's all I need. I don't know how it works. I couldn't explain it to you. I don't know the math. Someone did some equations at one point to design this stool. 
I know some engineers in this room that's like, I know how it works. I don't know how it works. That's how faith works, though, where you don't know. It's a mystery how it all works. You won't always have all the answers. It won't be clear as day. You don't get to wait it out. Let me understand all the facts. I need the full picture before I can trust. You need to have like 51% trust. You need to have enough confidence that you sit down. You could be torn up inside with doubt, but you have enough confidence to sit down. That's faith. If you read some of the journals that they find of really, really extraordinarily faithful people, their insides are pretty heavy with doubt. But they had enough faith where they lived it out. Classic example is Mother Teresa. How she lived out her faith, most of our journeys fail to compare. And yet, when they found her journals after she died, she was filled with doubts, torn up on the inside. And some people, that's discouraging. Like, wow, even she couldn't believe what's really true. To me, I'm really encouraged to say, your spirit and your brain could be at war in you, and yet you could, make, you could choose to trust Jesus enough that you can make your body do what it otherwise doesn't want to do. And that's faith. It's not mental assurance. It's not mental and emotional stability. It is enough trust in Jesus that you will, do what he, you will attempt to do what he wants you to do. You will attempt to trust what he says is true about you and what he calls us to in the world. You will attempt to trust that his teachings are the most accurate and real truth about reality over and against your own impulses or other alternative truths around you. That's how much trust we're supposed to have, just enough to sit in the chair. You may not understand it. You're not going to. It's going to be a mystery for a long time, but you can have enough trust to sit down. And so we choose to trust in that broader message that through Jesus of Nazareth, a Jewish person 2,000 years ago from across the world was indeed God in the flesh. And as such, he represented all human beings and God to be the middleman, the intermediary. Oh, my goodness. Intermediary. That's too many syllables for a fast preacher. I can't, I can't do that. He became that intermediate person to take on sin and Satan and death that has wreaked havoc on human beings since the fall in order to bring about his restoration project. And we can today. It's always an urgent matter. He is all the time in the world, and yet he's ready to do it today. The time is fulfilled. The time is now to repent and trust. We are all, that invitation is readily available. All of us are called today in some way to turn away from the false narratives, false hopes, false ideas, and false selves and turn towards Jesus who says to you in your eyes, you are my beloved child, and you I'm well pleased. How might this world be different if everyone in the world believed it to be the case that the king of the universe, the vastness behind all we see and know, would look you in the eye and say, you are my beloved child. I delight in your life. I'm glad you are you. In you I am well pleased. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you that through Jesus you have defeated our enemies, that you have torn down finally the one who has pestered us, the one who accuses, who tempts, who pulls us away, who lies to us, who isolates us, who causes us to be, believe lies about ourselves. May we trust in your victory that the powers of sin, Satan, and death have been finally broken. And maybe trust in the life that is available in you today. Help us, Lord. We need that help to have that faith in you. In Jesus' name I pray.
Amen.